What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson, and we're back with a fresh episode of Fish, Fish Sauce. Sauce. Join us on our journey into the minds of successful founders, operators, and investors. As we learn about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. As we mentioned, this season is all about growth. And in this episode, we want to share one of our core values, love the things you make. This value means a lot to us because it means doing what you love every single day with passion and conviction. Similar to how we started Fish Sauce, founders start companies where they find a particular mission that really resonates with them. I mean, this passion-driven career leads to personal, professional fulfillment and the growth that we all crave. And this is definitely one of our top values that we have when we whiteboarded. What we realize is that when companies are mission-driven, their people are aligned to that mission. The company, as a result, has momentum and grows as well. Elsa and I built a team around passion for sharing stories of successful founders, operators, and investors who have taken that leap of faith to find their secret sauce. And we were joined by an amazing content editor, Christian Edwards and Patricia from a growth marketing perspective. What we discovered through the process was that our passion resonated with others because our experiences, our personal experiences through pursuing finance and consulting as our first career move and then transitioning into the startup world really resonated with others who are also in the same shoes. And as we started to build the podcast, the mission got stronger and broader over time. People were listening, subscribing to the stories and it started with our family and friends and word of mouth traveled and one thing leads to another and now we've grown up quite a bit. So Elton, where are we at right now? The mission and passion has definitely led us to our subscriber base growing. So now we're at over 8,000 listeners mm-hmm. and over 80 reviews with five out of five stars. Pretty good. So yeah, let's keep this <laughs> momentum going and hopefully we can continue to share our passions to even more parts of the world. Absolutely. So none of these growth metrics couldn't have been possible without our family value of love the things we make. And this is our theme of this episode and, and we definitely are so appreciative of all the support we've had from all the Fish House family and the listeners. So thank you for listening, supporting, liking the Facebook page, following us on Twitter and subscribing and really, really appreciate it. And uh, you know, we, I know we asked for a lot. Elson, do we ask for a lot? Yeah, kind of a lot. Yeah, right? we do, but it comes from a point that, you know, we care and hopefully that we all are on the same mission. So really appreciate it there. Yeah, we're so grateful. So thank you so much for everyone's support. This episode features a Shrew's fish sauce story of an operator who has taken the leap of faith from the traditional career path to something they love to do. James June is the co-founder at Ritz, the app creating seamless dry cleaning and laundry experiences. Growing up, James worked at his parents' laundry store, so the industry is very, very familiar to him. After a career in consulting, he went to business school, and then he started investing in healthcare companies. But he realized he wanted to pursue a passion um, of really helping his parents and other laundry stores around his community through technology to grow their business, thus starting Rinse. James's story epitomizes the fish sauce family value of love things you make because he moved from a steady career path in finance to doing what he loves every single day. Absolutely. So for this episode's growth lesson for James, we learned that both personal and professional fulfillment doesn't only come from doing the right things in a stable career path that a lot of people are hoping and gunning for. He left his job uh, pursuing a hedge fund career, but instead he actually started a company called Rinse from the ground up. Now he's pursuing his passion. As we continue to grow this fish sauce family, we're realizing more and more the power of community. I got connected to James through a business relationship of mine as I was sharing fish sauce and what it was over some Korean barbecue and soju. He mentioned that he had some awesome guests in mind um, for the podcast. And then he introduced me to James. So thanks, Paul, for the intro. What's James' secret sauce? Stay tuned to find out. Mmm, can't wait. (laughs) So you definitely are the pure definition of fish sauce, one who has kind of (laughs) taken the leap of faith to do something on your own. Can you describe to us kind of that journey that you took? You know, growing up, sort of classic immigrant 
story with my parents who wanted me to study really hard. They took the risk to come over. They put everything into education and their children, kind of had this pressure to study really hard and get into good school. And so for a while there, you know, my life was about excelling academically, doing well in college, and then and then sort of taking safe, risk-averse steps in some sense. And so in college, I remember um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after college. And I thought, huh, I guess law school? Took my LSATs, chickened out, didn't really know what lawyers did, honestly. And so I noticed that consulting firms were interview on campus. I thought consulting in some ways felt like school. Ten-week-long projects. You had a beginning, middle, and end. It's like your paper. And you switch off to a new, a new project what felt like a new class. And I thought, huh, you know, I could kind of roll with this. And so that was my step to Deloitte. You know, if we kind of fast forward, one of our clients basically poached me. So that's how I ended up in Genentech. And so they're biotechnology cancer company based in South San Francisco. But uh, the industry itself is just fascinating. Genentech, for example, literally cures cancer. And so in terms of a mission-driven company, it's pretty amazing to work there. But I thought, you know, I I, kind of want to try my hand in something else, so I applied to business school. Didn't really expect to get in, honestly. Fortunately, got in. And when I got in, I thought, you know what, I want to continue on this healthcare path. It's something I've built some, some expertise in. How long were you at Genentech? For two and a half years. Okay. And so, and so at that point, you know, you know that, that, that kind of qualifies as, as, as expertise. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just weird. And when I look back at it, you know, you, you build this momentum. And it's really easy to kind of give this sort of path dependence where you think, okay, I think this is my passion. But is it really just something I've done for five years? And so going to business school, I thought, huh, I really enjoy healthcare, and I want to try a different sector. So on the investing side, I felt like it could tap into different parts of my brain. And so that's, I went to school with the intent of, hey, I want to get out of here and try my hand in late-stage venture or something in, in the finance world. When I was applying for business school, too, I was thinking, like, you know, what are some areas that I haven't tried? Like, I think you mentioned, like, sector or function of, a, of an area. I think investing is interesting. And a lot of our, our peers, actually, are considering business school at age, call it from between 25 to 30 or something or in that area. How, how, would you, how would you recommend they think about business school? Yeah, so I think there, there are a, a, a couple different types of, of use cases, if you will. So there are folks who would academically and everything about sort of knowledge domains would benefit from learning business. And I could see my peers from the Peace Corps or the military, and that that's real. Other folks may not need that. And if you're in that boat, you want to ask yourself, hey, there's an opportunity cost. It's real. It's no joke. Why are you going? And I think uh, a popular answer would be, hey, it's the network and the people that I'm meeting at school. And that's a fine answer, too. But then also having a plan going into school. So assuming that one gets in, I, I wouldn't use it necessarily for exploration, even though a lot of people tell you that. I think you need to have a plan because I've seen it too many times where people say, hey, I'll do this internship for this summer. And it's like, eh, that doesn't really fit for me. And then they're sort of caught in this weird position upon graduating. So whether a plan meaning I want to stay in this sector or this function, that's a plan. Could you share a little more about the startup you're working on and what it is? And- sure. So in 2013, I helped co-found Rinse. At its core, we pick up, clean, and deliver dry clean laundry. 
Doing this has been the best and hardest job I've ever had. And it probably relates to the same reason where the rate of learning is so intense. And if I look back in the almost five years I've been doing this, I've had multiple jobs. And it's probably like an answer you get a lot, but it's exhilarating because you're reinventing yourself so much. Part of business school is leaning on a network of people who've been through that before, who can give you that foresight of what to do, what not to do, and give you the, uh, the heads up, especially for someone who had transitioned from more of a consulting type of background, even though operating in Genentech, that's a big company. And so the things that you're doing in a big company, scale-wise, not as relevant to a two people in an apartment room you know, hashing an, an idea totally different. So right before starting Rinse, you were in healthcare investing. And how did you make the rapid leap from investing into being an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I think it, would, it was more of a, a gradual process uh, looking <laughs> back on it. So part of my job was meeting with management teams who were raising capital. And I would meet with hundreds of these teams every year. And after a while, I thought to myself, huh, it'd be, you know, it'd be amazing to kind of do what that side of the table was doing. And so that, that planted a seed because I enjoyed what I was doing intellectually, but also missed doing stuff. As an investor, you're somewhat removed from the actual action. Can that, you tell us more of the joy of doing stuff? What does that actually mean, doing stuff? Yeah, I mean, whether it's building a product, getting a service out there, seeing customers delighted or not, that's, that's doing stuff. And also at Genentech, too, I remember I was in the strategy arm, and, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of interesting work, but, you know, you're, you're removed from the physicians and the patients and the payers. So doing stuff felt even one step removed at that scale, too. That and also peers from business school were starting their own companies at the time or, or had done right after I graduated in 2010. So around 2012, 13, some of these companies began to grow. And I thought to myself, you know, you, you go to business school and at that moment, theoretically, you should be the most risk tolerant. But oftentimes people would actually go 180 and become the most risk adverse. It's a little, it's sort of a weird sensation where like, you know what, I'm going to go banking, private equity, I'm going to do this or that, consulting. But at the same time, you have this amazing degree. You should feel empowered to fail because what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to find a job. And for me, I felt myself in that bucket of, man, I, you know, I, I should be a little bit more risk tolerant. But I'm not because maybe, you know, and, and this is where the where, like, where culture comes into play I don't want to disappoint my parents. Did you actually feel that? Yeah, hundred percent. It's just like that guilt. Yeah, it's just guilt where you know for them, you know they they'd immigrate over here, you know, and part of this relates to founding rents. You know, they work in a dry they're dry cleaners. Mm-hmm. I'm a second generation dry cleaner. Gave up everything for me to 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 flourish here, and for them, it's just hard to comprehend why would you walk away from something that's so set and consistent and predictable for the uncertain. It just like it just doesn't compute. Somewhere. So when you're going through that thought process, did you quit and then try to think of ideas and then start? Or at the same time, were you moonlighting where you were thinking ideas at night, trying to find co-founders, yeah, pitching I, ideas? Yeah, I remember the first thing I did was, was I wanted to, to start a company in healthcare. And I felt myself kind of just drawing and ideating by myself. 
And I thought, why, why am I doing that? My co-founder now and I had always kept in touch. Periodically, we would meet up and actually ideate. You know, he has more of a consumer services background. I had a healthcare background. It would be a, a nice counterpoint in terms of ideating. So we, we were doing this in the background, but I was always thinking, hey, healthcare, healthcare, healthcare. Mm. I remember we were meeting up for breakfast. I was here in San Francisco, living in New York at the time for a conference. Before going to that breakfast, I dropped up by my parents' store. They've been dry cleaners for almost 30 years. They worked together. Prior to that, my dad worked at a liquor store. So these are very, you know, mm-hmm. kind of classic uh, immigrant types of types of jobs. And they put me to work when I was uh, really early in age. And so every summer, weekend, even at home, it's just the hey, you're, you know, you're our son. You're going to go to work. And so that's my literally my first job in life. But visiting them that one time, I noticed that a very simple problem was that we're, we're the customers. The machines that you're used to hearing were in the background as you walk in, just, it just wasn't happening. And that, that causes a bit of a, a spiraling effect where if you don't have the customers to sustain the operating machines, you have to reduce people's hours, it kind of just downward spirals from there. And so I thought, huh. You know, where do the customers go? And knowing that my aunts and my uncles were also in this business, same same question. Every Thanksgiving for years, we just talk about dry cleaning. <laughs> you know, when we're all together. And, you know, for me, the, the thought here was, okay, well, you know, I think I actually may, I, th- I might know the answer. One is customer sentiment and behaviors migrated slowly offline to online. And at that time, in 2013, Uber was really taken off, but it made delivery more accessible more affordable. And so the customer expectations, having services, food, product delivered to you, we take it for granted. But even getting food delivered here in San Francisco was like, whoa, crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that the combination of that effect was leaving a whole generation of owner operators who were brick and mortar, old school. You know, my parents don't know Facebook or Yelp, cash only. And so you have this entire co- cohort of you know, owner-operators who feel a little bit disenfranchised and, and feel like, hey, what do I do? I usually kind of try not to get too excited and wait a couple of days and try to defeat ideas in my head, but this was kind of stuck because also it was important to me mm-hmm. you know, in terms of helping people out and helping immigrant owner-operators out especially. And so I remember that breakfast with uh, my co-founder, he was talking about the Uber trend, you press a button on your phone, something happens, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. And I said, what does work for dry cleaning laundry? And he he looked at me and he pauses and he said, yeah, that may work. And I remember uh, he said, yeah, we need to run a test. We need to do this. I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm I'm here for like a day. Mm -hmm. But I said, you know what, I'll sign up for a test. So I flew back a month later, borrowed my parents' minivan, this 93 Mercury Villager, (laughs) uh, signed up 10 of our friends, drove to their houses, picked stuff up, got them cleaned at my parents' store, and then delivered it back. There was no packaging. It was just like you were texting, hey, we're eight minutes away. And this is where you'll really understand whether you you have some sort of product market fit, even amongst early adopters, is that after the service was over, that one cycle of cleaning, all nine of them came back and said, hey, when are you coming back and we'll pay you? And I'm like, oh, my gosh they don't feel sorry for us. You know, they're, they're actually willing to pay for this stuff. 
we've seen a lot of the Uber for X kind of businesses. We see that in food delivery, and there's a whole food delivery war. I think you're in the middle of sort of this this laundry cleaning war, so to speak. There's like a couple of companies around, and we saw that uh, Wash.io like left the game, and we see there's a couple of other competitors like Fly Cleaners, Cleanly, or a couple of other ones that are around. What are the factors that determine a winner in this market? Is there, have you been thinking about is it a winner take all? Is it the one that you know the most operationally operationally most efficient wins? Like, how do you think about winning in this area? Yeah, I think early on we made a very intentional business model decision, which has led to our growth. And early on, we said, we are not going to be on demand. We are not an on-demand business. And when we first started this company, we actually interviewed a number of our friends. We did some need-finding interviews where we said, hey, what do you need? And no one really said, hey, I need it now. So we have a pre-planned pick up and uh, delivery business, and we only operate from 8 to 10 p.m., period. If you look at other, our direct competitors, they probably took a, a different route. And so Washio uh, has exited the business, they were on demand, and they had a very expansive delivery window. And what, what I think happened in this, this kind of delivery logistics space is that you see a huge company like Uber, and Every marketplace has its own dynamics. On demand, it suits that marketplace. And what I, what I think happened is you would see other companies say, okay, that's what a winner looks like. I'm gonna be on demand, probably be open for a long time, and then scale as fast as, as quickly as possible because that's what Uber had done. And I think a number of these companies probably took that playbook and appropriated that to their business. Yeah. And so for us, you know, we, you know, we, you know, our, our turnaround time. So if we picked up from you, it's it's about a three day turnaround for dry clean. Anything that comes back on a hanger, vendors need that time to properly clean your clothes. If I promise to you as a customer, hey, I'm coming back today or the next day, yeah, you can do two, three, four, five orders, high quality, no problem. But it, knowing the production process, having worked there. At scale, that's going to break. The only way they're going to clean that is to, to cut corners. And so that extra time allotted to the vendor helps with your product. We know that from the start, and that's just me working in the dry cleaning business, so that we, we built for that. Uh, our other competitors went, hey, same day or next day. I'm like, wow, that's really hard to do, and if you can do it, great. But I'm, we're going we're gonna to be pre-planned, scheduled, not on demand, very limited uh, pickup and delivery windows, and that's how you scale. You, you basically scale something that's more stringent, more, more limited. We started this business where we, we opened zip code by zip code. And I remember Washa, who was our uh, main competitor at the time, raced out different cities. We, we weren't really even all seven by seven San Francisco because we wanted to make sure that our operational kinks were ironed out, so to speak, before we took the playbook and ran, ran to other cities. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of intentional approach was slower. We had a lot of people, a lot of investors and folks say, hey, like, why, you, guys are just, you guys are great. You guys are way slow. Why aren't you on demand, you know? Yeah. Things like that. And so... We, we stuck to our business model, but 
you can easily see how some companies make a buckle to pressure or whatever, what have you, because everyone's saying that, hey, you're wrong. What's the culture like internally? I think the culture reflects a lot of uh, the values that my co-founder and I uh, espouse. And I think, you know, we, we day one, we wrote, we wrote our core values and not not having founded a company before, my co-founder said, this is really important. We got to do this. I'm like, okay. It's so important right now because it it basically helps shape behavior. I can't manage people in Boston. No way. So you're, you're hiring people whose behavioral tendencies align with our core values. How do you continue to refer to them and have people stick to those and, and act on these core values when they're such regional areas. Do you yeah. just trust at hiring process or there's like a maintenance of culture over time? Yeah, it has to be both. And so um, when we have internal communication, I'm always trying to reflect on core values nonstop. And if I think I'm saying it enough, I need to keep continue to do so more. One of our uh, core values is honesty. And part of that, if you kind of zoom out of honesty, it's relates to humility, understanding when you've messed up, which allows you to take feedback. We have another core value that relates to embracing change and ambiguity. That's probably like a, a startup one in general, where we want people here who understand that the constant is change, and folks who've worked at larger companies, it's just not a good fit. It's, it, it just isn't. You can screen that out pretty, pretty commonly in, in, in interviewing. What's your favorite question that you ask that tests for some of these core values? I say, have you ever made a hiring mistake? Or, or tell me about a hiring mistake you've made. And if someone says, oh, I've no. many. Yeah, <laughs> people say, oh, yeah, a crazy question? I've never made a hiring mistake. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like, that, that, that's not going to work. I mean, mm-hmm. so, and you, you just got to keep harping yeah. on it. Because that, you know, you think about culture as a way to, to shape positive behaviors you want rewarded. That's the management tool right there. Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're probably not, you don't know what WeWork San Jose or whatever is doing. You have to go through people you hire, you have to go through people to make sure that they're aligned with the core values that, that drive this company. Could you tell us about the mix of your day? Like what's on your mind? I'm one of those folks who have converted into a work, uh, waking up really early in the morning now. You know, it, it, it's at the point where the, where the day, uh, I'm doing air quotes right now, the, the day, day starts. <laughs> It's just, you know, meetings and correspondence. I'm pretty intentional. The hardest things I work at are really early in the morning, like 5 to 8 a.m. And so I work on... 5 to 8 a.m., 5 a.m.? Yeah, you know, 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. You have to <laughs> That's just, really early. Yeah, just because there's no noise. And I love Slack. I don't know if you guys use it. Yeah. It's a lot of noise. It's, it can be very noisy. Yeah. But in that kind of hour, it's relatively quiet. And so... I kind of explain my role to our folks in the term, uh, using time horizons. And so if you're uh, an hourly worker, you're, you're there to execute, move this bag to here, deliver this to here. If you're a team lead, you're trying to think at the week or two-week level. Hey, I'm going to schedule this person for this shift, things of that nature. If you're like an assistant to or, or someone who reports to the city manager, you're thinking more on the month cadence. Hey. I need to make sure our supply lines are, are, are adequate. Our city managers try to think on the quarterly basis, three months. I'm trying to think here on six months plus. If you think about where are we going to be in six, 12 months, that's, 
that's a, a type of thing that's appropriate to me. And if I think about it, what am I, what am I differentiated in? There's not many people in the company who can kind of think in those time frames, nor should they. And yeah. so I should be spending my time on what I'm uniquely differentiated in. It took me a while to understand that. Because as you're growing a company, you're like, oh, I, I can do that thing better than you can, and I can jump in here and do that, and yeah. now, now I'm just messing things up and you know, not, not empowering people to do their jobs. And, and also, if you think about managerial economics, I shouldn't be doing that, literally, because my time is, is you know, air quotes, more valuable than some other's, other person's time. And it sounds so, like that's a learning experience. Could you share an example that you maybe have made a mistake while you're trying to get yeah, two hands I, in the weed, but not high level enough over time. Yeah, I think I think you know when you, when you think about scaling, and this is uh, you know in services, it's not like software. You kind of just you know scale in a different it's way. An operations business that takes people. So I opened our first 300 customers. So if you signed up for rents, I drove to your house and I greeted you. And I remember doing this, and we had a night where I thought it was it was a busy night, but Looking back on it, wasn't it wasn't very uh, uh, busy, but um, I was driving because I really liked driving, really liked meeting customers. And then I remember at that night, I looked at back, I looked at the, the the total volume business we did that night. And I thought, you know what, I didn't I didn't move the needle at all. I, I, I literally didn't move the needle. You know, I met twenty five customers that night that did not move the needle. Why should Why am I doing this? I, I had to kind of give that up. And giving that up, you're thinking, oh, man, this other person can't do it. Yeah. And, and one, of, one of the challenges now I see is, you know, when people grow from an individual contributor role to either managing process or people, it's difficult. They can be an amazing individual contributor, but the skill set is very different. And letting go and effectively delegating is really hard. They, they don't teach that in, in business school. It's very, very difficult. And it's not just about delegating but being okay for people to make mistakes again and again and not you know, and not saying something every single time exactly yeah. and so <laughs> that's you know that's something that uh, you know I learned the hard way where you know you know I'm, I'm literally bottlenecking the company by driving and I should be doing something else having your experience within the industry for such a long time. I mean, you grew up essentially helping your parents kind of build their business. What are some of the surprises that you've learned in this new age industry? My mom and my dad gave me advice after I convinced them of what I'm trying to do. You know, they said, okay, it's clear, James, that you're going to do this, and I'm going to give you pieces of advice. My mom said, hey, if you're going to be the biggest dry cleaner in Pacific Heights, what are you doing? Why are you leaving your job? You need to make this worthwhile. So like, okay, great. So my mom is sort of the front of the house. So she greets customers, her customer face. My dad's back of the house doing operations. My dad said, there are some very fundamental rules to dry cleaning. I'm going to tell you this right now. And this is, this is based on 30 years of experience. And what's surprising about this is that this is so true. And this, again, this, this man has never really done any data analysis or, you know, uh, so he said, hey, First thing is to not lose anything. I'm like, okay, that's very interesting. Don't lose anything. And then he said, don't damage anything. And it's in that order because if you damage something, you can fix it. If you lose it, it's gone. And the third, try to clean as best as possible. And so that's translated into inventory control. We were religious about inventory control. We use a lot of scanning technology, understand where things are. 
we partner with the best vendors who understand how to clean. And I remember going to our first couple of vendors, bringing my dad, who could just be that that person who can really suss out, hey, are you, you know, do you understand cleaning? And so, like, in some ways, like, the most, like, low-tech advice has just been absolutely true. One of our core values is, you know, take ownership. And it actually says, you know, no one's above, you know, wiping the windows, sweeping the floors. And I think part of where culture comes is this blue-collar immigrant mentality because that's, that's what people have to do. I'm not above it. And I think, of, you know, if you, you asked me before, hey, what's the culture like? I think there's a sense of being blue-collar, being humble. I think humility goes a real long way. One of ours at Fish Sauce is make your mom proud, which we like a lot. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that's actually a core value of ours too. Oh, really? Yeah, it's make, it's make no mom, way. Make mom proud. Oh, oh wow, hundred percent. We didn't know that. That's awesome. You t- mentioned your parents and a little bit of your upbringing. Could you give us a little more color of what that's like? You know, what is your ethnic background? Oh, yeah. Where did you grow up in? Like, you know, talk about those, you know, um, your cousins, your aunts. Like, it seems like there's the whole community kind of matters. So I'm Korean American. My parents immigrated from Korea. I think in the 70s. I grew up in San Francisco. Not many people that I meet apart from my high school and grade school friends are from the city, and I've seen the city just change tremendously. Yeah, how has it changed, Kiers? Oh, boy. I mean, everything's more expensive. You know, we're, we're, we're in WeWork right now, and it's different. It's it used to be a lot rougher. I'm, I'm going to tell you that right now. So I grew up doing that. My, my uncles, my, my aunts immigrated here as well. You know, I have, I have a brother. We all we all live kind of close to where we grew up in the Outer Sunset, and so yeah, it's been great. They they they've worked here. They initially moved to Chicago, moved to San Francisco. The weather's a lot better. You know that that's been my my upbringing. Random question: What do you think about the Korean food in in San Francisco? I know that we're, we're coming from from LA and we're just amazing some, Korean food. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's it's sorry, random yeah, question. <laughs> it's it's tough. LA, I mean, you know, just just the the critical mass of people is is just really tough to beat. Oakland's really good. I actually prefer here. There are some sort of Korean Chinese restaurants here. It's like San Tung is one that's mm-hmm. uh, you know a different flavor, but. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to beat L.A. One thing that stuck out with your story is actually not that different than my family story. So my parents, they own a used car dealership, very traditional type of business, right? Immigrant parents coming over here, and they've hustled their way. A lot of it's relationship-based, very highly operational company. And my brother, he um, he left Google to work for an online used car marketplace. So it's a kind of tech-enabled new version of it. And what's funny is that my brother's business is really disrupting my dad's and my parents' business over time. So what do your parents think of what you're doing now? Are they proud of what you're doing right now? Do they wish you'd done something else? And is this or is the jury still out? I think they're they're very proud. I think initially when we first started, they they were like, "What are you What are you doing?" I think it's one of those things where because we made the explicit choice to not vertically integrate, to partner with people who are good cleaners, who could use the volume. I think that makes them, it makes me proud. You know, so we have a network of vendors all across America that we're partnering with. You know, they, they tend to be immigrants too. They need to put food on the table. They need to send, send their, their kids to school too. And so that's a, that's a part of rents where, which is really important to me. Because every time I, I just think about my parents and what they had to go through, too. There is a little bit of a disruption from the consumer end, but I'm really happy to say that we're, we're partnering with existing establishments. So when people look at your profile and have followed what you've done on LinkedIn, let's say, et cetera, it seems like you've made the perfect decisions every step of the way to get to where you are. What are some instances where you would have changed the direction or done something different? I think out of business school, 
I should have been more risk tolerant. You know, so again, I think the the, my, the investing job was I learned a lot. It was great, but looking back on it, there there was some inertia where, hey, I'm in healthcare, I'm going to be an expert here. I really do have some passion for it, but that was that was kind of the reason. And so going to the job, I, I realized, you know, I'd say fairly quickly within a year or so, like, eh, I don't know. And so if I had to reverse it, I probably would have done something different, something that, and I, I don't want to say more entrepreneurial because it's hard. You know, it's just hard to kind of think of the counterfactual or like, eh. I'm literally sitting in that seat that you were in, um, I don't know when you graduated, 2013. 2010. 2010, yeah. 2010. I'm also graduating in six months, roughly. And I'm, I mean, Elsa and I talk about, I'm literally tr- straddling the opportunities. Should I do venture investing or should I do more startup and operating role? And both are very interesting to me, right? Yeah. And what, what do you tell someone like myself who's like, you know, thinking about like this, this um, sort of um, chasm or business school side, what do you tell the people who are interested in startups? How do you f- find the urge and the feeling to just take that leap of faith? What do you tell them? Well, I'd say first of all, I'll tell you, yeah. in a year, year and then two years, you and all your classmates will be in different jobs. <laughs> I've seen that happen before, <laughs> so don't try to overthink it. Like, <laughs> and, 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 you know, if you have classmates who are going to do banking for two years, yeah, they're going to be a different job. Like, it's just going to have, it's, there's, there's turnover. So even if you make this choice, and it's, it's somewhat monumental, like, you can get out of it. And, in fact, pretty much all of your class will. So that's one. You know, it's kind of case by case in the sense that, um, you know, depending on where you're at in your career, I think if you are just out of college, for example, I do think there's something important about going to a, a company where you can learn. So, you know, whether it's the investment bank or consulting curriculum, you learn some pretty good skills there. Now, with that, you should feel emboldened to kind of make a choice. And if you're thinking about the startup world, there's different phases, and the bigger, you, the bigger you are, generally speaking, the more process and learning is already embedded in the company. The earlier you are, you're just kind of fixing stuff. And so you're going to learn, like, you know, school the hard knocks kind of way, where you're just, you're just going to just fix problems. That's a very different type of learning. I'd say in either case, you work for bosses, eventually not companies. And so be really intentional with who you're going to work with and who's in your advocate. Because if you, if you can latch on to someone who becomes a mentor, that's fantastic. Because they'll bring you to different companies. They'll, they'll, they'll be lifelong friends. And so if you're thinking about that, really pay attention to the team and your direct supervisor. So for our very last question, in fine fish sauce fashion, what's your secret sauce? Both figuratively there and what's uh, your secret sauce, literally the sauce that you like to eat? The secret sauce is definitely, it's a combo of sriracha and... This Korean sauce called gochujang. Yeah, yeah. it's super popular. <laughs> yeah, it's really, yeah, it's really good. So, secret sauce. I think um, I've been lucky slash serendipitous in the sense that I've had mentors and, and people who've looked after me and kind of fell into things. And I don't know if that's engineered. I don't know how much you can engineer that or not. But you can definitely surround yourself with good people. I think for me, I think being humble and humility. I know what I don't know. And I know that sounds like, like, what is he saying, right? But just understanding what your limits are, not being afraid of learning from people from potentially surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you, knowing what's not a good fit, really, really, really being introspective here. And then, you know, in sort of more, more Korean-American fashion, kind of put, putting your head down, just getting stuff done, you know, I think. 
being humble and having your work speak for itself is kind of more my style and that's just it's led to good things I've never really sought out you know certain things and that's been the constant in my life thanks for listening to this week's episode of fish sauce if you like what you heard follow us on linkedin twitter and sign up for our newsletter for the latest updates and special surprises also treat yourself and a friend to a fish sauce t-shirt from our swag store fishsaucepodcast.com we can't wait to see you rocking on the streets if our mission resonates with you please leave a review on itunes and don't forget to share with your friends so we can welcome them into our fish sauce family and lastly big shout out to our awesome editor christian edwards for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of fish sauce What's your secret sauce?